entering the Freedom Hut. It's going to be a Freestyle Friday in the Freedom Hut. We have job numbers in. Trump talking about what he's going to do to get the border under control. The theories about the Mueller cover-up are already underway from the left. We'll talk about that. And who controls the Democrat Party right now? Some interesting thoughts coming up from Howard Schultz, formerly of Starbucks. That and more on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Economic numbers just came out. They're very, very good. Our country's doing unbelievably well. Economically, most of you don't report that because it doesn't sound good from your perspective, but uh, the country's doing really, really well. We have a lot of very exciting things going on. A lot of companies will be announcing shortly they're moving back into the United States. They're all coming back. They want to be where the action is. Uh, I'm heading to the border. We're building a lot of wall. We're going to show you a section. And a lot of things are happening. A lot of very positive things are happening. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. 196,000 jobs in March. Numbers just came in today. And so, sad day for Democrats because the country's still doing well. Still a lot of job growth, a, a buoyant economy, a growing economy, and... I guess it's doing more than just floating, right? <laughs> it's it's uh, it's actually moving in the right direction. And if you ever want to feel like the so-called experts really know nothing, just go back and read some of the leading economists that are propped up on TV and with columns in the major newspapers, what they were saying about what this president would do to the economy. Now, here we are two years in on year three and still a very, very strong economy, a lot of growth. And, and still a tremendous amount of optimism in the small business community. Entrepreneurship is on the up and up. Things are looking pretty good. But you're not going to get us. As Trump knows, I mean, he said it. You know, They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about the economy. They'd much rather discuss Trump's tax returns. Play 13. Oh, I don't know. That's up to whoever handles it. I don't know. Hey, I'm under audit. But that's up to whoever it is. I, from what I understand... The law is 100% on my side. The law is 100% his favor. He says, I, I think that we are going to eventually see Trump's tax returns. I don't think they're going to be able to keep them secret. Um, you're going to get some judge. just Because remember, all it takes is one or maybe a few, depending on whether it's an on-bank review or something in the appeals court. But you, know, you don't need a lot of lib judges. And there are plenty of Obama appointees and still plenty of Clinton appointees before that who sit on the bench. And all it takes is the right circumstance. And once that stuff is out there, it'll be out there. I'm not worried about it for Trump's sake. I just think that the likeliest scenario of all is that they're going to use it to try and and mock this president. But these are, whether we're talking about the press corps or the Democrats, there's a fundamental lack of seriousness in in their conversation and what they're trying to to do, what they're trying to say. Um, This is all... Once again, colored by the I hate Trump disease that has infected the minds of Democrats across the country. 
And so there's not much constructive discussion or reporting that goes on. It's all just finding the latest rage narrative to placate the left-wing loons over at MSNBC and at CNN and wherever else you find the, the Looney Tunes left. Here is just, just a, a smidgen, just a little taste of what you hear on those networks right now about the member. The Mueller report is out. There's jobs numbers out today. Economy's good. Boy, the border's a mess. It's a disaster. We'll talk about that later. I'm not saying there aren't big problems. We've got big problems. But the economy's actually pretty good. It's, it's not a big problem. And, and under another president, you would have the media celebrating this. I mean, they are actively rooting. The Democrat press is actively rooting against America here. They, they would prefer there to be suffering of the American people as long as it benefits Trump. They don't care about that. I'm sorry, hurts Trump. They don't care about that suffering. Uh, if it means that Trump is is uh, in a rough position, in a rough spot. So here's what they want to focus on, that somehow the Mueller, they were singing Christmas carols to Mueller not long ago. They were, there are reports in places like the New York Times about how, uh, you know, aging left-wing true believers are were worried that they would die before the Mueller report came out, because they wanted to see justice so badly. Justice, of course, being that Trump is frog-marched out of the White House in, in chains. You know, that These were the stories. This is what's out there. People were crying. People were devastated that the president wasn't a traitor, which you and I knew all along, but they didn't know that, apparently. They truly believed the opposite, which does not speak well to their judgment. And this is what they say now, oh, it's it's all part of the big plan here, a cover up because the report is not out yet. Play nine. If we get like to mid April and still don't have the full report, will it start to look like a cover up every day that goes by without the American people getting the actual report? The details that you talked about is indicative of a cover up. The fact of the matter is that Barr could show that he cared about transparency if he went to the court, as Jaworski did, and said, Judge, please release this to the House Judiciary Committee. He's doing nothing of the kind, so he's perpetrating, in my view, a cover-up. This has the smell of cover-up. What do you have to hide? And it seems like Barr was covering up for the president, or at least trying to whitewash some of the nastier facts. But they have to know by now how it looks. It looks at this point like a whitewash. If we start running our government based on lies and deception and cover-up and make that the normal standard operating procedure, we're moving into a very different form of government. A cover-up, they say. Wow. A cover-up. Keep in mind here that all along, Barr has been saying that they they will release the full report. It is it is not it has not been a question that they were I mean there are going to be redactions in it and as I've been telling you they're going to say oh the redactions are an effort to hide this information but they are going to release the full report that they're so focused right now on the speed with which the report is going to be released just goes to show you that they they need a focus on something that is not substantive in the objection, but just gives them something to get upset about. Oh my gosh, they have not released the report yet. Yeah, that's because they're they haven't 
they haven't had time to go through it all. They have not had an opportunity. There are pro Mueller rallies that have happened uh, recently in in Times Square, and I'm trying to you know they have they have things in this they they have song lyrics they're distributing to people with things like "Next Plane to Moscow" and "Puppet King." And, you know, we will stop you. And it's all this anti-Trump stuff. I mean, this has really become a part of a part of this left wing protest culture that the Mueller probe is is something that should be celebrated, even though it didn't take Trump down, I guess. I, you know, they, there's just a, a, a bizarre delusion at the heart of all this. And, and they will not focus on things that really matter to anybody who is normal. Um they just want to pretend that there's a cover-up that's going on here, even though there's no evidence whatsoever that that is the case. A few weeks to go over a three or 400-page report of this kind after two years of what we've seen is, is for the government, that's lightning speed. A, a couple of weeks to look at a report of this length. And I just, I have to hammer this point home. Remember all of the voices you're hearing right now in the press and in the in the Democrat Party saying that they they want transparency. They need transparency because there's another whole set of documents where transparency sounds great to me, too. Transparency is really appealing. I want to know what was provided to the FISA court to get warrants to do spying surveillance on someone like Carter Page. I, I want to know what was said. We all should know. I'd like to know how large a, a role the dossier played in all this. Jim Jordan, of course, agrees with me. Play 10. If we want the truth, if Jerry Nader wants the truth, then let's let's release the FISA application. Let's get the 302s. If Jerry Nadler wants the truth, call in Glenn Simpson. Bring him in an open hearing. Put him under oath. See if he takes the fifth like he did in front of our committee in a closed-door deposition. Indeed. Closed-door deposition, huh? Let's see that information. Release. Release the Kraken. Release the FISA. Release it. Let's see that. Let's have Glenn Simpson testify. Let's bring some people forward here. They, they were so obsessed with this investigation. I, I want to see where this all goes. Uh, so I just would know that, you know, it's, it's a good news. The good news for the country today is bad news for the Democrats. That's all. That's really the, the takeaway. Economy strong. Good jobs numbers. Democrats are, oh, it's terrible. And let's talk more about the cover up with Barr. Are they going to admit that there wasn't a cover up when Barr releases the report? Of course not. These people have no accountability. They have no integrity. They have no honesty. Howard Schultz, interesting character. There's a, there's some interesting folks who are popping up in this fight for the Democrat nomination. You got that guy, Andrew Yang. I interviewed him recently. He's, he's at least intriguing. I will give him that. He is intriguing, and he'll talk to anybody. He, he will sit down with conservatives. Bernie, even though I think he represents an evil ideology, we'll talk more about that going forward, too. Uh, Bernie will subject himself to questions from Republicans. So many of these other mainstream Democrats are such wimps, won't defend their ideas publicly, will only go into media outlets that are part of or that really constitute the heart of the echo chamber. But Howard Schultz is a guy who, I don't know if it's for reasons of patriotism or just sanity, doesn't want to see the 
Democrat Party become the party of socialists. And he sees what's going on here. He sees where this is all heading. I want to get into some of what Schultz said in just a moment. So, team, we also, just so you uh, can get excited about what we have to look forward to on the show on Friday, I told you we might be joined by some friends. We have an all-star lineup of Lawrence Jones from down at the border. He's an old friend of mine from The Blaze. He'll be joining also of CampusReform.org. David Harsanyi from The Federalist. And back by popular demand, the one and only Jesse Kelly, all eight foot ten of him. He'll be joining us on radio. You won't be able to see him, but you can just hear from his voice that he's he's the he's the jolly Texas giant. He'll be joining us later on in the show to talk about some of the biggest news stories of the week. It's a Friday, so fry yay, get excited, kick back, relax, and let the good times roll in the Freedom Hut. We'll be right back. If a Democrat runs who resembles uh, Bernie Sanders, who says he's a democratic socialist, Donald Trump is going to get reelected. But on the character issue alone, lifelong Republicans will not vote for Bernie Sanders, but they might vote for somebody who is independent, a centrist, and wants to restore a faith and confidence in the promise of the country. Howard Schultz, former CEO of Starbucks, does he... Speak for more than a, a fringe of the Democrat Party? Oh, I wonder these days. Do, do they recognize how damaging it would be? How much of a massive sea change it would be if Democrats put forward as their candidate officially somebody who describes himself or herself as a Democratic Socialist. No longer could Democrats say, oh, don't say it's socialism. It's not socialism. Oh, no, your last candidate was a socialist. That means your party certainly is a party of socialist principles and platforms right now. Do they realize that, though? I don't know. Do they understand the real long-term implications? Has Trump broken them so much? Has Trump so thoroughly trolled and demoralized and deranged the left that they don't have the capacity for judgment anymore on this issue? I think it's very possible that they will put forward someone that does fit into what Schultz is describing here and that it would be even even if here's what I'd offer to you I mean they better get amnesty through and essentially destroy the economy and get single payer all in the next presidency because if if they put forward a a democratic socialist and, and he or she loses that's going to haunt their party for a while I don't know if they'll reform themselves or not but I, I don't think the American people are ready, at least not a majority of us, are ready to accept that socialism is the future of this country. Democrats, a fair, a fair number of them do, but not a majority of us. Um, but there's a, there are sane voices in the Democrat Party that are trying to warn their, their fellow travelers. They're trying to warn them about where this party's headed, where it's going. And, for example, Schultz is uh, is is saying something here on immigration that is going to make him completely unacceptable to the left. Play five. I can promise you that Nancy Pelosi, under any circumstances, will not give President Trump a victory on immigration. The issue that we have to recognize is this. President Trump is correct, and the Republican leadership is correct, that we need fierce, strict levels of control on that border. 
That is absolutely true. This guy's a Democrat, folks. He's a Democrat. He probably understands some basic principles of economics like supply and demand, like dumping endless amounts of unskilled labor from the third world on this country is not, in fact, a recipe for economic success, assimilation, or social and political cohesion. It's probably not a good idea. He understands that. It's not a good idea to have lawlessness at the border because lawlessness at the border begets lawlessness in the interior. If we won't enforce the laws at the U.S.-Mexico border, we're not going to enforce the laws against people that violate those laws once they're living in you know, Cincinnati or San Diego or Tallahassee or wherever. So this needs to be a situation that we get under control. But speaking rationally as a Democrat these days is dangerous business. Uh, the, the party has gone hard left, far left. And Schultz, in trying to save it, may in fact in some ways, I think, solidify just how crazy they are. You know, because people like Ocasio-Cortez, and we'll talk about her later on the show, Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, these leftist true believers, when confronted with the buffoonery of some of their most important ideas, their reaction is not to reflect, to deal with the, the numbers that are presented to them or deal with the counter arguments that dismantle the delusions that are central to believe that what they think is correct is going to be correct. Uh, they just double down. They dig in uh, because that's that's in their nature. Uh, There is a self-reinforcing cycle among leftists of anyone that disagrees with them has to be acting in bad faith and is a bad person and has bad ideas. And that's now an ethos that comes from the top down among Democrats. The most powerful Democrats take that approach to the other side. They are not trying to win converts. They are hunting heretics. Schultz knows this. And I don't know how much room there's going to be for Schultz in the Democrat Party or, you know, I know he's talking about running third party. They're going to put the heat on this guy like nothing else, because, yes, if he if he did run, I think he hands the whole thing to Trump, which would be amazing. So I I'm kind of liking Schultz right now. He's saying some sensible stuff and he's a sensible guy on some issues, which separates him from most Democrats. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with working retail, folding clothes for other people to buy. There is nothing wrong with preparing the food that your neighbors will eat. There is nothing wrong with driving the buses that take your family to work. There is nothing wrong with being a working person in the United States of America. And there is everything dignified about it. I, in fact, am encouraged when people remind the country of my past, not because of anything about my story, but because it communicates that if I could work in a restaurant and become a member of the United States Congress, so can you. So can you. Ain't nothing wrong, she's saying. Kind of a strange affect all of a sudden in AOC's speech there at the National Action Network conference. I've never heard her sound like that before ain't nothing wrong she said what was that she all of a sudden kind of got like a little bit of a southern vibe it seemed to see noticeable to me you know noticeable to me i thought uh it's a little a little strange 
Also, here's a classic Democrat tactic. I want to talk about straw men. Uh, what exactly, who, who does she think she's refuting with this? It's it, nothing wrong with preparing food or driving buses or, no, we, we like people doing jobs and getting paid for them. Yes, that's right. That's the system we have, capitalism. The system that she seems more fond of is one that disincentivizes people from working really hard because it's very, very hard to get ahead. And it's very hard to benefit personally from your labor in the way that you would like to because of all the constraints put on you by the government, because of what Bastiat in The Law, a book that I would highly recommend to any of you who want a pretty quick but very insightful read on why redistribution is what he called plunder, which is just the seizure of what is yours by the state under the guise of it being moral or ethical or good, uh, that that leads to all kinds of problems in society. Uh, President Trump recognizes the, the downside of what can happen when the government decides what you can have and should have or should not have. He mentioned Venezuela today. Play 14. Venezuela is a mess. This is what socialism brings. You elect a socialist here, you'll have the same exact countries you have in Venezuela. Thank you. Now, I mean, it's not going to turn into Venezuela overnight. So I, I have to, you know, I, I, Trump is right here on, uh, right here in the spirit of things, but take a little more time than that. But it would put us on a trajectory that I'm not sure we'd ever get off of. Once people are, are of the belief that what they are being given by the government, that the government has seized from other people is not just their, their legal right, but a moral right, an ethical imperative imposed by the state, by the government. Very difficult to change their minds later on. Does not matter what the end results are. Does not matter how much damage is done to the economy. People never want to be told that what they have been given was not theirs in the first place. And they certainly would not want to be told in an AOC-approved redistributionist system that it's not going to continue going forward, that people are going to have to make ends meet on, on their own. Uh, I, if you had told me even five years ago that there would be such an open embrace of socialism in the Democratic Party, I would have, I would have said, not yet. I knew it was going to this place. But it has surprised even me with its speed. I mean, the acceleration into full-on socialism from the Democrat Party, um, meaning, and look, I know that what they're really just doing is is moving along with the and going further down the line on beliefs that they've long held. This is this is their progressives, and this has been a progression into socialism. So we have been expecting this, but it's it's sped up. It's gone faster. In the post-Obama era, look, Obama, as much as he didn't accomplish things that I think were good for the country, from the perspective of state control, the enlarge, uh, the in, enlarging of government, I think Obama was very effective at setting the groundwork for where we are now, which is a full-on socialist running for the Democratic nomination of the presidency. And I know that Bernie ran against Hillary in 2016, but it was still considered a knock on Bernie at the time across the party that he was... A, so, a democratic socialist, that was definitely, and that's why they went with Hillary, the most unlikable candidate in recent memory to be on any major party ticket because they thought she was electable. Why was Bernie not electable? Oh, because Bernie was a socialist. Now they're saying not only is Bernie perhaps electable, but he is electable because he is a socialist. That is quite 
a change. And the adoption of Sanders-esque policy proposals by the Democrat Party overall is indicative of exactly the kind of shift that I'm talking to you about. We've been expecting it, but it's happened much more quickly than we anticipated. There's also a shift among Democrats to stoke racial tensions. You're seeing more of this. I want to discuss that with you and how it's going to play into not just these primary contests, but the 2020 election in some very uh, unsettling ways. That's coming up. Today on the 400th anniversary, an anniversary of the first Africans being brought to this country in slavery, the average black family now has one-tenth the wealth of the average white family. The truth is that this racial gap exists because slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, and predatory lending stole wealth from African Americans. Just last year, the Republicans in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District threw enough votes in the trash to rig an election. Massive voter suppression prevented Stacey Abrams from becoming the rightful governor of Georgia. Last election, we saw great campaigns run for governor by Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, and Ben Jealous. All of us recognize that we have a long way to go to end the institutional racism which permeates almost every aspect of American society. Democrats, all these white candidates who talk incessantly about race, and I find it very, uh, very illuminating that the way that they discuss race is from a perspective of such intense negativity and and divisiveness. And I, I think they speak about race in a deeply irresponsible way. You know, I, I'm and I know that, you know, this you get into some pretty, uh, pretty tense territory here with some people. But I've got to tell you, there's a real rewriting of history that's occurred about what race relations were like under the Obama administration when Democrats uh, were in control of, of much of the government, most of the government until the sort of the second part of Obama's term. And we had what were effectively uh, race riots. I mean, that's what the you know anti-cop Black Lives Matter uh, riots in Ferguson and Baltimore and elsewhere, I mean, that's what they would be called or would have been called years and years ago. Uh, there were riots stoked with, by racial, you know, racial antagonism, racial animosity. And I, I just think that Democrats are so completely and utterly irresponsible with how they talk about these things. I mean, for, for Bernie Sanders, who is very sensitive about this issue, because Bernie is like as white as I am. I mean, Bernie is a very, very white dude. And, you know, Bernie Sanders is a guy who's he's obviously from Vermont, which is one of the whitest states in the country, too. He gets up on stage and says that race permeates every aspect of our society. This becomes obsessive. I mean, I, I don't even think that that's, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. What, what are we supposed to take from that? If race, and by that he means racism, if racism permeates every aspect of our society, have we, have we made progress or not? Has, have uh, race relations in the last 
70 or so years dramatically improved? Do we have equality under law? In fact, this is where Democrats get very, very testy. The only inequality we have as a function of law privileges certain minorities, not all minorities, not Asians, but privileges certain minorities over others and over certainly over uh, the, the white majority in this country. And I, I would, would start to wonder when we can have a conversation that goes both ways about the, this, this doctrine of white privilege that white liberals are some of the biggest proponents of talking about. Uh, but this doctrine of white privilege and the usage of the term white supremacy to describe all kinds of aspects of society that no normal person would think are, are permeated with or infused with white supremacy. Uh, when when do we get to have an honest conversation about how this has become a kind of hysteria? Uh, that this is just it's it's now it's it's too much. You know, when can we say that that people who claim that America, as, as Eric Holder did, America is a, is a, a nation of cowards when it comes to race. Uh, we, we talk about race and racism incessantly. I mean, if you turn on MSNBC at any given time in their primetime lineup, when they weren't doing Russia collusion delusion for, you know, night after night, if you've gone before that period, uh, the chance of there being some story on race is very, very high. I mean, CNN covered the Ferguson riots and, and covered the, the whole Mike Brown uh, situation, you know, in, in a way that was clearly intended to inflame tensions. And what they do is they get people, you know, all people that they can from all different backgrounds and ethnicities really angry about what's going on. And then the transference of this. And this is the Alinsky style mobilization. They get people really angry over race and they say they're the bad guys and they are Republicans. It's you and me. Although I know there are liberals who listen to this show too, and I'm so glad that you find this show entertaining enough and information dense enough that even though some of you disagree, I, I love getting those emails, by the way. Whenever I have liberals that reach out and they say, hey, I don't really agree with you, but I just, I find the way your take on things interesting, I take that as a high compliment. Uh, and there are some liberals that I, well, I read a lot of liberal stuff, but there are some liberals that I deeply admire for their skill at least even if i think they're wrong uh, their skill in uh, rhetoric in argument in, in in writing so you know that's you gotta you gotta respect the game sometimes back to this issue of the democrats and and race i i'm trying to get a little bit ahead of this because i think we need to be prepared for what is going to be a very ugly election cycle uh, they are going to call this president so many terrible names and say things about him that when I, when I say it's irresponsible, you know, to, to claim if you're sitting in elected office in this country and you claim that the president of the United States is effectively a neo-Nazi. That and, and then you also are, are always pushing this narrative that white supremacy is infused all throughout American society, that white nationalists are the biggest terror threat in this country and we need to be on the on guard against white nationalists you know oh, uh, why is the tsa going through your stuff because of all the white nationalist concerns right i mean it's ridiculous but in that environment to say that president trump somehow fits into that is to create the the grounds for people to go way outside the bounds of of civilized conduct and to do things that are that are illegal and that, and that are horrific. 
You know, I have not forgotten that it was a, a Bernie Sanders supporter. Now, people who bring up the, that guy, uh, Sayok, who is just a, you know, a, a delusional loser and, and, a, and a loner who was in the kind of MAGA mobile. You know, yeah, he sent bombs. He sent bombs in the mail to people from uh, the networks. My understanding is that the, the bombs were not intended to go off. Doesn't mean it's okay. The guy should go to prison for a very long time. Uh, but remember, it was the only person who's actually shot someone in recent years in American politics was a Bernie Sanders supporter, a Bernie Sanders supporter who believed that Republicans were a threat to this country. And that's not a leap from the rhetoric and the stories and the things that you're seeing on the mainstream networks. You know, and this is a very important distinction. You know, Sayok might have been the guy who lived in the MAGA van who was sending the pipe bombs in the mail. You know, he may have been in the comment sections of some far right websites or he might have been reading Stormfront or whatever. But the guy who uh, James Hodgkinson who shot Steve Scalise, almost killed him, tried to kill many more specifically conservative members of Congress and targeted them, had a list of their names. His thought process about how Trump is a danger, the Republicans are a danger, they're destroying this country, that's mainstream media thought. They say that, is a, that they're a danger. I mean, this is, and, and this is what I mean by talking about how you know Black Lives Matter was was being magnified that cops were hunting young black men for for sport, essentially, in this country, that, that they were murdering them because they are so racist and they just felt like it. Well, if that's really true, then there are people who are going to act on that in terrible ways, right? The same way we talk or the, the same you know logic uh, is is something you have to transfer to what we're seeing here with the talk about how racist and terrible and racist this country is. Some people are going to hear that and they're going to act on it in ways that are unpredictable and could be very damaging. And I just am sick of Democrats being so completely reckless in their demagoguery about this. Elizabeth Warren does not care about poor people or minorities more than you and I. Bernie Sanders does not care about poor people and minorities more than you and I. And this is one of the, the fundamental pretenses of contemporary liberalism in this country is that people that adopt these positions and these talking points care more about black people in this country, care more about, uh, you know, women and the LGBT community. And, and they just are trying to gain power and virtue signaling and treat our side like we're not trying to treat everybody like equals, like people of equal dignity and and. In the eyes of the law, in the eyes of God, they, they just left it. Basically, leftism is cancer, is what I'm saying. And it's cancer in the debates or in the discussions over race. And it's cancer in the discussions over everything right now. And and I think we're heading into a very dangerous period. You're just it's, it's early. It's early. The Democrats are focused on each other right now. But you can see the initial embers for what I think will turn into a conflagration of hate against this president in 2020. It's coming, and we need to be prepared for it. We're going to go back to that period where they're shouting people down in the streets and scary things are happening because Democrats are nuts. 
In February, Leadership Institute field organizer Hayden Williams was just trying to help some conservative students recruit for their group at UC Berkeley, and he was viciously attacked by a radical leftist thug. One of my closest friends when I was in college was trying to recruit for college Republicans, and he also was punched in the face. Folks, it's out of control. The leftists are running amok on campus and trying to silence conservatives. Do you want to help? Do you want to help make this stop and support conservative speech so that it flourishes on campus and then in the rest of American society? I certainly do, and that's why I urge you to please go to TakeBackTheCampus.org. That's where you can find the Leadership Institute, the premier organization for educating and training conservative college students. You want activists on campus who are conservatives? Visit TakeBackTheCampus.org. Get into this fight team. Help our conservative activists make a donation today. TakeBackTheCampus.org. Check out the Leadership Institute. So we're in also disaster response. I mean, it really is an emergency. You've seen uh, the people at the border. Uh, so what I've done is I've basically instituted a very traditional emergency response posture. So I'm pulling on all of the departments in the federal government, asking them to fill those resource needs that we have because we have declared the emergency. So we are doing that now, uh, and then we continue to work with the military. Border's a mess, I've been telling you. I was down there last week. I was down there a couple months before that. And our next guest is a, a friend of mine who was also just down there. You got Lawrence Jones in the house, everybody. You know him where, uh, from Fox News, where he's a contributor. Also, uh, Campus Reform, where Lawrence Jones can be found, campusreform.org, all about the campus wars for free speech. Mr. Jones, my buddy, good to have you back. What's going on, brother? Uh, so tell me, where were you at the board? Were you in El Paso like me? Um, I did the Laredo sector. So. You did Laredo, okay. So, so yeah. tell oh, this is great then because I do. I was in El Paso last week. I've been talking about it on the show. Tell me what they're telling you at Laredo sector. What's going on? Well, there's a couple of things. You know, the cartel. You know, a lot of people don't understand this, but I know you do, Bob. Uh, we may control the American side of things, but in order to cross, at least specifically in the Laredo sector, in order to cross that border, uh, it goes to the cartel. Um, they're paying thousands and thousands of dollars to get people across. Now, last year we saw an uh, uptick of the Bangladesh uh, nationals coming across, and that has since stopped. And that's because Border Patrol um, took out one of the cartel leaders there. But in the last month or so, there's been this uptick of Chinese nationals. So uh, the night before last, as I was on a ride along, the Border Patrol engaged with two Chinese nationals they arrested rested uh, while we were in the middle of this ride-along. Um, and they told me that this is an uptick that they're going to see for a couple months now because um, there, there's a new avenue for them to get across the border. Now, what's important about the Laredo sector is that although the Border Patrol is technically responsible for 100% of that sector, they can only protect 30% of, of that sector. That means 70% is open, wide open, for uh, illegals to cross. And what were they saying just about the the resources that they have to deal with this problem? Given the the migrant crisis is happening across the border, it, it it look Lawrence. Last year was the most violent year in Mexico's history in terms of murders, and a vast majority of those are drug cartel related fights over turf and uh, people assassinating you know members of police or people who talk or snitches or whatever. Uh, what what are you hearing from Laredo sector about? the drain on resources at the border that has happened from the migrants and what that means for the battle against the cartels. 
Well, so there's a couple things. Uh, As far as the resources, not even getting into the border wall and technology aspect, even though that is a big part to make this work, they don't have enough agents to do their job. And, you know, I've seen it firsthand now that a lot of these agents are put in difficult situations because it will be one agent in the field uh, covering a part of the sector and their bag up will be 15, 20 minutes away. Now, if you're engaging with eight illegal aliens, which is they come in groups because that's how they pay the cartel, they have a guide to get them across, then if there is a weapon, if all those who have weapons, then that that agent is out of luck because their backup won't be able to get to them. So, you know, the border wall is great. We need it because it slows them down. It's a part of the system. We need the technology advances as well. But if we don't have agents there that are equipped to make the arrest, then none of it matters. What's it like in Laredo, by the way, these days? You know, El Paso was pretty was pretty quiet, although it was interesting. I, I met with the El Paso mayor and I said, are you guys seeing any any crime that spills across from the border in a way that not, not including illegal crossing, but more along the lines of violence, you know, felony crimes and. And uh, the mayor, of course, said, oh, no, we're one of the safe. We're the safest city in America or one of the safest cities in America. And then I spoke to some of the Border Patrol guys. They said, actually, we've started to have some drive bys and uh, some things are getting a little a little hotter here than they've been in a while, in part, maybe because law enforcement resources are so uh, fixed on trying to deal with what's going on with the migrant crisis, at least when we're talking about Border Patrol. So the cartels might feel a freer hand. I'm just wondering, I mean, is Laredo. Pretty quiet? Are they are they worried about a surge and some bad stuff going on? Well, it depends on what part of Laredo. The, the houses that are closest to the border are the ones that are affected the most. I mean, directly, like, for example, last night we did a ride along, um, and as the agents were pushing them back to the river, they cut back and ended up going across the border behind people's houses. We got a call from the Laredo Police Department that put it into the Border Patrol unit that these people were behind. But now, uh, we, they end up getting them, but again, there's been gunfights, which is why you know there's this old trending topic about me wearing a vest that the border patrol may be put on. Part of the reason because there's been gunfights um, and there's been violence, and when the cartel gets upset uh, and there becomes these turf wars, uh, then the public that are on the that border that you know they suffer the consequences of that. Uh, I can't stress this enough. Although we have control on our side, um, the cartel runs the other side, and it's only a river separating it, uh, you know, us from them. And I know that AO, Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, uh, went after you with her social media because, as you said, you put on a, a vest, which you were told to do by a by Border Patrol in a, a ride-along situation. I, I don't know. It, you know, it could even be... For them, it's just a liability and an insurance issue. But 100%. yeah, but a- but AOC is giving you know it's giving you a hard time. I was wondering what, what you told me. You clapped back at her. What'd you say? Well, I encourage her since she doesn't believe there's a crisis at the border to come to the Laredo sector and get a briefing just like I did. You go out there um, and, and and do a ride along with these agents and experience um, the turmoil that they experience on the border. I mean, it's insane. I have some way more respect uh, for the Border Patrol agents. Uh, before I came there, you know, I just supported them. But now I've, I've seen what they have to go through. Their life is at risk every single time they're out there. 
uh, because they don't know what they're going to interact with, especially at nighttime. It gets really crazy at nighttime. Um, in, in the middle of my Fox shit the other day, when I'm doing handling these programs, uh, they just start crossing the border. And right when we finish it, we hop in the car um, and the agents pursue them. But you just never know. And so AOC is acting like there's not a problem. The Democrats acting like there's not a problem. There's just no violence. Um, and it's just absurd. Either they're being intellectually dishonest or they're just straight up lying. So, Lawrence, uh, I know you also, we're going to switch gears here for a moment. You uh, are at Campus Reform. So you're part of an organization that's trying to highlight the uh, speech wars on campus and really the efforts by the left, the continuing dominance uh, by the left or of the left's censorship of conservative ideas and thoughts. And, you know, we here on the show have partnered with the Leadership Institute, which is on the on the front lines and, and is very much involved in trying to create conservative activism on campus to counter all this stuff. I just wanted to take a moment here because, you know, you're a friend of mine, you're a friend of the show. Yeah. What is the Leadership Institute really doing? I mean, how, what do people need to know about this organization that, for, for full disclosure, of course, is one of our partners now on this program? Yeah, so the Leadership Institute trains conservative activists on the college campuses. We know there is a war happening on the college campuses. And the Leadership Institute essentially equips uh, young people for that battle. Um, now, on the campus reform side of it, we're the media arm. We, I like to tell people we're the judicial watch of higher ed, and we hold them accountable by reporting um, every single day over 110 correspondents or college students that write about what's happening, free speech issues, liberal biases, indoctrination that's happening on the college campuses today. Uh, and there was really a void because the media really didn't cover this. They didn't think that it was an issue. And when campus reform started to expose courses such as at San Diego State on how to impeach Donald Trump, literally being taught in the classroom, people started to be really alarmed. And uh, it's because of the patriots, the grandmothers, and the moms and dads that are really concerned about socialism um, taking over the culture that we've been able to be uh, so successful. Folks, you should all check it out. Leadership Institute's a place that I think is doing really important work, and Lawrence over Campus Reform is raising the issue. Lawrence, we're going to have you on. To, you know, we want to have you to, to uh, raise awareness about what is going on on campus and and some of the the battles that are underway for free speech, especially after Trump signed that executive order. Um, we're going to hope to see some real improvement, but people should definitely check out uh, the organization. We'll be talking more about them later on the show. Buck at TakeBackTheCampus.org. Uh, we would really appreciate if you support us um, and, and help us fight this free speech issue on the college. I've been over there to visit Lawrence and the rest yeah. of the team, guys, and I can tell you they, they take this mission very, very seriously, and yeah. they understand how important it is. Because if we've lost the campuses, we're losing that next generation uh, that they're turning out, and they're progressive indoctrination factories. So if you want to help fight, you want to help Lawrence and his colleagues and partners in this fight, takebackthecampus.org is where you should go. Lawrence Jones, my man, great to talk to you. Good work down on the border, and we'll have you back real soon. Thanks, brother. We'll talk soon. Team, we'll be right back. I don't know how many more children need to be exploited or how many more families uh, need to be put in harm's way by a trafficker before Congress will act. Uh, but as you saw, we have tried everything we can at DHS. We are absolutely out of the ability to manage this flow, uh, and they need help. Congress has to act. They have to get rid of catch and release. 
chain migration, visa lottery. They have to get rid of the whole asylum system because it doesn't work. And frankly, we should get rid of judges. You can't have a court case every time somebody steps their foot on our ground. Trump is right, but saying Congress has to act, unfortunately, is insufficient because we know Congress will not act. I was uh, joking around with some colleagues today over at the Hill where I said maybe maybe what the founding fathers really had in mind was was gridlock. You know, maybe maybe they preferred it being very, very hard. I think you can make a real argument about this being very hard to make sweeping changes to governance in this country. And so what we think of as as partisan gridlock is is a status quo by design. Uh, That's certainly an argument one can make because we're always saying, oh, why won't Congress do this or Congress do that? We have so many more laws now and so much more in the way of statutes and, and legislation than we ever have in our country's history. Uh, maybe it is time to slow some things down. On this issue, however, the current system is bad. It's not that we need new laws. We need laws that will fix what's going on or we need legal and statutory clarity on what's happening here. And that's why... I don't see how this will improve because there's no incentive right now for certainly the Democrats have a majority in the House. And look, I I have to say it. We there was a lot of time wasted early on in the administration. You know, they they went with the travel ban. Well, if you're going to get into a, a big political fight on an immigration related issue, I don't think I would have started with travel ban, folks. I just I wouldn't have. It's not what I, not how I would have gone about it. And so that's, I, I just feel like there, look, there have been some mistakes made here. There's no question about it. And it would be in many ways surprising if there weren't mistakes because you have uh, people that are trying to work within the upper reaches of the government bureaucracy in this White House who are kind of new, who are who not, not kind of new, are new to the game. But the, the problem right now, is, as I see it, is, is only likely to get worse, as I have been telling you. Uh, one area of this uh, that I think is is particularly uh, interesting is when you look at what's going on with HHS and the funding for it, that HHS is, is spending now to resettle unaccompanied Central American teens. Uh, Daniel Horowitz over, over at Conservative Review has written a very interesting piece on this. He does very he does excellent work on immigration in general. I don't know the guy, never met him, but I find his stuff uh, to really be uh, very very insightful, very thoughtful. And what what he's written here is that HHS Secretary Azar um, has made sure that there's going to be you know plenty of of additional funding for the seventy to eighty children who are taken into custody by by Customs and Border Patrol each day. And there are currently 12,340 Central American children in HHS custody. And they don't have the space for any more. They're spending $1.3 billion a year on this program. And the program, the whole resettlement, so so this is a program, just so I'm being clear here, for unaccompanied children who show up at the border they we take care of them. We place them with a sponsor family or, or with sponsors in this country. And, and then we're supposed to figure out what is going to happen with them. But all of this is really just another way of smuggling people into the country. 
because they have illegal family members who are in the country. And so what they do is they show up at the border and then they are released into the interior to that family. And so we are paying for the resettlement of illegal alien children to join their illegal alien families inside the United States. And the cost of this for the for the American taxpayers, a billion dollars a year, which is that's real money. I, I know that people owe a billion here, a billion there for the government. Uh, they wouldn't give us a billion dollars for the wall, but we'll spend a billion dollars on illegal alien transfer of illegal alien you know, youth to their illegal families in this country. And the drug cartels are making uh, are making money off of this thousands of dollars for every person. 72% of these unaccompanied minors are male and 15 to 17 years old. These are basically young adults, folks, okay, who are showing up at the border. These are 17-year-old dudes who are showing up at the border saying, hey, I need to be reunited with my family now. And that means that they're getting in before they're actually adults. There's a huge incentive because they're going to get sent at taxpayer expense to join their illegal family illegal alien family or family members. Um, this is this is astonishing. I mean, we're just we're being taken advantage of. That's what this is. People are, are they figured out that America, uh, you know, the political system is very fractured right now over this issue. And nobody wants to be the mean person who turns away refugees or, you know, won't let people who are supposed to be, you know, people who are fleeing violence be here. And, you know, th this is like we started a charity and now instead of people showing up just for food when they're hungry uh, and they can't get any other food, they're showing up for three meals a day and demanding food. We are being taken advantage of by Central American migrants. That is just a fact right now. And what are we going to do about it? Well, here's what Trump and Pompeo are saying about the next move. Play four. Mexico has been uh, doing a very good job the last three or four days since we talked about closing the border, which is very real. Uh, but what's more real initially is tariffs on the cars coming in, a 25% tariff on the cars being made in Mexico coming in. They are. Uh, they're they saying are. they're going to do, do it. Do? Uh, so we need to see action. And now we need to make sure they have the capacity. And so we've worked with them to help them for years and years. We've provided lots of resources, not only to Mexico, but to Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador as well. And they have to do it. And if not, the president is going to ensure that um, we protect our nation. We've given them a year warning. So who knows what's what's going to happen in a year? We don't have the answer for this problem yet, folks. We, we have not yet figured it out. And time is not on our side, but we will stay on it here in the Freedom Hut. That's for sure. The reason Republicans hate me so much is because I confront them directly on their moral their lack of moral grounding on so many issues. And not just that, but the reason they're so upset and they act like that girl in The Exorcist that's like vomiting pea soup, that's like them and negativity. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the reason Republicans uh, have a problem with her is that we think she's really stupid and, and incredibly arrogant. Uh, so, yeah, but there's some other stuff I want to address here, like this notion that millennials have it so badly and that everything is ruined for them speaking of negativity turns out that's actually not true 
And our friend David Harsanyi over at The Federalist explains why. He's got a piece, Millennials are the most prosperous generation that has ever lived. Oh, and by the way, also the freest, safest, most educated, longest living, and most globally connected. Mr. Harsanyi is with us now. David, great to have you, my friend. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, first off, just what, what do you make, what is your diagnosis of the rise of Ocasio-Cortez in American politics? Well, I guess, you know, I mean, there isn't a sort of populist appeal to her, I guess, um, for people who don't really understand what she's talking about in the sense of her socialistic ideas. I think she's a perfect straw man in a way to bash those ideas because she's such a bad, um, she's such a bad like, like in that clip you paid, she said that she confronts Republicans directly. Has she ever debated a conservative about this? I don't, I've, I can't remember her debating anyone about these ideas. She just tweets stuff out and she thinks that's confronting them. And it's sort of, I don't want to bash on millennials. It's sort of a, you know, a sort of contemporary thing to do to think that you're actually convincing people by tweeting out something. She's never really confronted them in any real way. I feel like no one, and this is a little bit of a digression from what we're talking about, but David, I feel like people don't, there's not really debate anymore anyway, because everyone just wants to connect to the the folks that they want to connect to, like their own audience, their own side. I I can't remember the last time I saw a really uh, in-depth, substantive debate between real heavy hitters on an issue. Uh, I feel like it never happens anymore. You know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about that as well. You know, when I started out many years ago, you know, people would write a another column that pointed out things I had said wrong, and we would sort of go back and forth. Even in, in social media, that would happen maybe a decade ago. But now it's more like pointing a finger at the other side and saying, look how dumb they are, and then getting, you know, getting a mob of your followers to sort of mock the other person. You never really see a kind of a debate about an issue in the way that we used to. And why? is because I think it's just you're incentivized to act like a jerk pretty much on social media. But also, maybe we're just so far apart on the issues that there's really not a debate to be had. I think we used to sort of have similar goals and different ideas of how to get there, and now we don't even share the same goals most often. So I think yeah. that maybe that's the problem. But I, I, I don't know, and I'm somebody, just like you, David, I for a living now and for going on a decade, been writing, thinking, you know, speaking, doing all these things about different issues. If I sat down with uh, Ocasio-Cortez on the Green New Deal to try to talk to her about it, I mean, I think that she would look like an idiot, but I think that her side, for example, wouldn't in any way accept that because we we can't even agree on the basics of saying the world is going to end in 12 years is a crazy person thing to say. Right. And you heard her talk about morality. A lot of this is based in emotional response and, and, you know, the moral thing to do. And um, it, it's never about the outcomes or the cost or, or sort of any kind of real economic breakdown on what these things mean. It's the moral thing to do. Once you think you have the moral high ground, I said this often, I mean, progressives to me, I started out as a sort of full-blown libertarian many years ago. And, you know, I wasn't crazy about the, you know, Bible thumping, you know, evangelicals and things like that. They, to me, they are, they are that now, you know, they, they have a moral they think they have the moral high ground and they don't really even need to debate you anymore. They just have to tell you how moral they are all the time. And that's how she is all the time. Now let's address what she recently tweeted. Got a lot of attention. Uh, She, she uh, tweeted out people. This is Ocasio-Cortez people. Our age have never experienced American prosperity in our adult lives. 
which is why so many millennials are embracing democratic socialism. Uh, I'm pretty sure I read that on my iPhone that at full price would cost $1,000 while I was waiting for the order of food that I had placed via an app for an Indian Indian restaurant 15 blocks away, watching my flat screen, 40-inch TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, David. I mean, I'm not about to cry big tears about how my generation has no prosperity, but this people believe this. Yeah, I mean, and what you just mentioned is kind of important in a way that I don't know that a young person might understand. You know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, a small a kid in the 70s, let's say, it's like I had to wait to hear. If I wanted to learn something, I had to go and drive or walk or ride my bike to a library, figure it out, look it up, that sort of thing. And now you have the world at your fingertips. Literally any piece of literature, art, news, anything is right there. Just as a sort of revolution of information and knowledge, it's just amazing it's it's maybe the mo- most revolutionary thing that's happened to to just to, on an intellectual level you know what i mean and i don't think people realize that but just beyond that uh aoc has she's experienced one since she has graduated college there's only been one quarter of negative growth in our economy i don't even know what she's talking about it's just been a uh, uh, humming economy since the since the last recession we had, and you'd think that that recession was like the depression or something. It wasn't. We have recessions all the time. It was the recovery that was sort of slow, and we can argue about why that happened. But certainly, she has not. Ex- she's only experienced prosperity in her in you know as general in society in her life. It's often claimed that millennials have lower earnings, fewer assets, and less wealth. You right, David? Why is this? Mostly, it's because they get to go to college. You know, in my grandfather's day or even my dad's day, a lot of people didn't go to college. Most people, the vast majority of people didn't go. They went out and got jobs after high school, and they got married after high school, and they started to accumulate assets of some sort. Now, millennials get married much later, and they go to college, um, and they have loans for that college. In the long run, they will have more. Early on in their lives as young people, they don't have as much if we just, you know, add up the numbers, which is a silly way to look at the world. But And also, you know, a lot of uh, people, you know, especially in, in Gen X or older, went and got bought houses, you know, out in suburbs and things of that nature. Young people today, they like to live in urban areas that are super expensive and they pay rent. So it's just a different world. And most of those, most of the reasons are their own choices, not some societal, you know, problem. Isn't it interesting that, there's always this tendency in it, particularly in, in the news business, which I know you've been in for, for quite a while, David, longer than I have. Uh, there's a tendency to, you know, not just not just the most basic. If it bleeds, it leads. And, you know, people, yeah, people like stories of of death, fear, catastrophe, all that kind of stuff. But also just in, in politics, if you want people to pay attention to you, you really have to focus. I feel like 90 percent of your energy on how messed up everything is all the time. And the moment you try to say to somebody, look, we got problems, right? Like things things are bad. Like there are issues with our healthcare system that, that annoy me, but we also have a pretty amazing healthcare system. Nobody wants to hear it. I don't know. I feel like this is... Life is better right now than it's ever been for anyone ever in the world, for you right here today. That doesn't mean you specifically or me specifically, just in general, you know? And I don't think people understand that. And maybe they shouldn't, right? I mean, no one cares about that kind of context, I guess. But I'm always reminded, just because you mentioned about the media, years ago I was at a newspaper, 
and, and, and the gas prices had sort of gone up for whatever reason. And an editor told me I should probably go out to one of the gas stations, find some, you know, old lady or something and talk to her about how terrible these gas prices are. And I wrote a column about how gas prices, the popcorn that you buy at the movie theater costs more than the gas that you buy. And you should be happy that gas is so cheap. And that didn't go over too well because it's not the sort of thing people want to hear. They want to hear how they're suffering and how hard it is for them. And those are the things that people click on, unfortunately. I always remember uh, this. I can't even remember the context of it, but there was this lecture or it was a speech. Maybe it was even an interview years ago with with uh, Michael Crichton, who I've always liked because his books kind of got me interested in books when I was a kid. You know, he was the he was the break in the dam for me. You know, I read Jurassic Park and then Congo and then Sphere and then Rising Sun. I just read all these books one after another. Uh, you know, when I was in the fourth or fifth grade, fifth grade, I think. And and so I've always found him an interesting guy. And he talked about how. You know, and he was a, a best-selling author, wrote ER, the show that was the number one show on TV for years and years and years. And he said that he, he had been through this so many times in life that he knew better than to sort of think about it again or, you know, to, to try it again. But he said, if you go to a cocktail party, you know, this is one of these cocktail party things, but if you go to a cocktail party and you tell people just a story of how, how scary and terrible things are, people can't, people all want to hear. I mean, they just crowd around you and they, well, well really? That's going to happen? That's, you know, ooh. He says, if you go to a cocktail party and your approach to life is uh, that things are actually pretty good and things are getting better, and he says, not only do people not want to hear it, they get angry at you oh, because you don't understand how bad it is. Yeah. When I write how great things are now, by every quantifiable measure possible, we prove that things are better, less poverty, le- everything. They get mad at you. They send you mail. They're mad. They're mad that you're not, because I think they feel like maybe you're not taking the problem seriously or dismissing it, which I don't think you should do either. I'm not dismissing that there are poor people and we shouldn't help them. I'm just telling you there are fewer poor people in the world now than ever and that a lot of good things are happening. Look, I talk, I mean, you know, one of the one of the things that yeah, that is true about either news or analysis is that I talk about the problems that are out there because I want to address them, sure. fix them. And also people, you know, we, we, we don't need to spend a lot of time in, inherently on on what is going great because it's going great. So I, I do think that there's a natural bias toward covering issues that are problematic. But I just also think it's funny that AOC is so mindless that she's just like, we've never experienced prosperity. And that's just, oh, a, just that's a patently stupid thing to say. She, she just tweeted something today, I forget it specifically, she had like four points, each of them was completely made up, you know. Uh, another point she once made that made me laugh was that people are dying, she was, I think she was sort of yelling this in Congress, people are dying from the weather all over the world. Meanwhile, over the last hundred years, extreme weather-related deaths have, have plummeted, plummeted. People don't understand how often, um, you know, Americans and others would die because of the heat or the cold. Uh, we, you know, and they don't anymore. I don't think they understand. They think that every weather event is it's the first time this has ever happened. You know, hurricanes, it's the first time we've had this, this sort of weather. It's just nonsensical. And we've only been measuring these things for maybe 100 years. And, you know, Earth is, what, 4 billion years old? It's just funny. So, guys, if you're ever having a down day, just email Harsanyi, and he'll explain to you how everything's actually pretty good. So there you go. The piece is millennials are the most prosperous generation that's ever lived. And basically, the world is pretty good, folks. It's all going to be okay. That's your Friday, your Friday positivity dump. Uh, Mr. David Harsani, always a pleasure, sir. Have a great weekend. You too, anytime. Bye. Team, we'll be right back. What I think is that we are committed to policies that make, make American lives better. And um, we're actually talking about something substantive. We're not calling anyone names. People say Tea Party of the Left 
And I find this phrase very interesting, this phrasing very interesting, because the grounding of the Tea Party was xenophobia, the underpinnings of white supremacy. Okay, can we stop right there? We gotta, we gotta stop AOC right there. We gotta stop AOC. This is what we're up against, folks. We're just about improving people's lives, and like, we don't call people names. Unlike those stupid white supremacist xenophobe people. <laughs> She's such an idiot. I don't. I mean, Democrats should be ashamed. I mean, they're not ashamed. They should be ashamed, though, because she is an absolute buffoon, and she is the most powerful. Uh, this this twenty nine year old know nothing is the most powerful uh, Democrat politician in terms of messaging and media coverage in the country right now. She can get more attention with one tweet or one statement one you know green new deal release from her office than any single presidential contender right now on the democrat side she has a complete lack of self-awareness a complete lack of the understanding of her limitations and and isn't isn't gracious at all I, and i think that that's you know you, you see this on the left is that they're little radicals and they they don't have humility they don't have an understanding of why other people feel the way they do and why maybe there's a need to at least show, even if you disagree strongly with the other side, showing some respect to their ideas. You know, she's a person who's coming along and the ideas that she's promoting, never mind, are stupid and not feasible, but they're new. And the ideas that she wants to supplant are tried and true. And we're talking about things like capitalism. We're talking about, you know, contracts and rule of law and these are these have been around for a long time for a good reason and i'm not saying that they shouldn't get uh, that you can't debate them or they can't be adjusted but she doesn't even understand why it is that there are people who want to conserve what is good and functions well in our society she just thinks it's all you know racism xenophobia you know white male privilege all that kind of stuff Ah, uh, AOC. Oh, she said this too. Play seven. Guess what? I'm 29. I'm the youngest woman to ever be elected to the United States Congress. I have plenty of time to learn, and I'm not afraid to make mistakes and iterate in public either. And frankly, if the mistakes that I'm making are just a one-off, like, rhetorical thing, you correct it, acknowledge it, and move on. At least I'm not trying to cage children in the border and inject them with drugs. That's not a mistake. That is a deliberate policy to attack people based on their national origin. That's not a mistake. That's just hatred. That's just cruelty. That's just wrong. This is what we're up against. I don't know if she really believes that, but I, th I think she does believe all the crazy stuff that she said there. I think she does believe that the policy of separating uh, families at the border because what they're doing is illegal. And that's what you do when people break the law. You know, if, if mom is driving home drunk and has the kids in the back seat, you know what happens? Mom and the kids get separated. That is the law for everybody else. But if you don't really believe that crossing into the country is illegal just because you say so, well, then there's no justification for separating these families, of course. And that is the position that she takes. But to suggest that it comes out of sadism, and cruelty and because of national origin uh that's just a, it's a smear but this is what she does and she is uh but that whole thing about how she's going to iterate in public i i've not heard her 
in any way step back from some of the stupid stuff she said, correct it. Uh, and we, we should all be troubled that somebody who is so ignorant and so incapable of formulating any kind of coherent policy on anything is is ascending in this way in this country. And I, and I really I think that on the one hand, I, I do mock her because she's deserving of mockery. Uh, but she's also a dangerous harbinger, I think, of the leftism to come, especially if we hit some rocky times in the economy, which I believe are not far away at all. Even if I knew for certain that I was going to run for president back in Thanksgiving, my intention in the beginning, if I were to run, would be the last person to announce. I uh, and uh, so everybody else for a day, then I get a shot and then we off to the races. I would find it a fascinating exercise to just ask people that because the, all the polls show that was Biden, of course, and all the polls show him at the top of the Democrat pack. And there's now 18, maybe 19 people who have said they're running for president, even Eric Swalwell. I mean, if Eric Swalwell is going to run for president uh, on the Democrat ticket, I might as well run. You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll just just for giggles. Why not? I'll just change my party affiliation and just run as a Democrat. It'd be so fun. I'd just be like, hey, man, I'm so woke and like whatever. Like you can just take all your all your white privilege and your social injustice and like, why don't we just redistribute the wealth, man? And, you know, I could I could be a great I'd be a great fake lib. I could do it. I should probably create a fake lib character. I could have mock debates with here on the show, uh, you know, who just use all these all this made up terminology and. You know, I, I would I would uh, insist because I identify as as, uh, you know, Vigo, the space lord ninja master, that that's what everyone have to call me, because that's how I identify, man, as Vigo, the space lord ninja master. Um, but, you know, this is this is a a moment where when you look at the Democrat field, you see one, there's just a lot of people that are. It's bizarre that they would ever think that they could win. But why Why would anyone vote for Biden? I, I really mean this. What is the appeal of this guy? I, I've never seen it. I understand why people would vote if you're a Democrat. If, if I'm putting on my woke hat and pretending to be a leftist for a moment, I get why people would, uh, from that perspective, vote for some of these individuals. I even understand why they'd vote for Beto. Because, like, he's always wearing a blue shirt and he just wants the whole country to come together and embrace. And he'll be the vessel for that embrace. Uh, I, I understand these things. Biden, to me, I, I've said it from the beginning, he's such a mediocrity. And, and then he's obviously got this weird, handsy, creep master thing going on here. Play 15. And I, I hope it wasn't taken that way. But... Uh... There was, uh, you know, I literally uh, think it is incumbent upon me, I think everybody else, to make sure that if you embrace someone, if you touch someone, it's with their consent, regardless of your intention. Even if you're trying to bring solace, if you're trying to welcome them, and uh, it's, uh, it's my responsibility to do that. Uh, okay, maybe we can move on, but... I've been saying it all along. 
it's not conservatives that are, quote, pouncing here. It's not conservatives that are saying Biden's the old creepster weirdo. I mean, we're having some fun with it, being like, he is kind of a creepy weirdo. But this is really a civil war. You're seeing this. This is a they're using Biden as a proxy for power within the Democrat Party because Biden's very much a part of the old establishment just because he connected himself to Obama, just because he's attached to Obama as his vice president doesn't mean that he is of the Obama wing of the Democrat Party. Really, he's not a progressive. He's an old school Pelosi Clinton Democrat political machine operative. That's what he is. And there, I think, is, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing some of this happening here. And there are people that want to establish themselves as on the more woke side of this, including people that used to be, you know, ready for her on the Hillary side of things. They, they want to they see where this party, the Democrat Party is trending. They want to be in good with the with the hard left. Here's I've never heard of this person before, but Jess McIntosh, who was a senior advisor for Hillary Clinton, although I feel like everyone's a senior advisor. Right? Is anyone a junior advisor? Does it ever appear on TV? I was a junior advisor. I was like, you know, seventh man on the eight man deal team. But uh, I'm here. I'm going to talk about everyone's a senior advisor. Here's what Hillary advisor Jess McIntosh had to say about Biden and his apology. Play 17. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's he's got to take responsibility. I think that's what women are waiting to hear him do. That this excuse that that societal norms have changed just doesn't wash. I mean, that that sort of paternal behavior uh, towards women in in a professional setting has been making women feel uncomfortable for generations. The the only societal norm that has changed is that men seem to be taking us seriously when we complain about it now. So so the idea that that this behavior used to be okay and now it's not just really doesn't. Wash. I see an interesting nuance here, which is that she's claiming that now women are taken seriously in the context of the Biden discussion when they complain. But you'll note that women didn't complain before about Biden. I I have not seen and I I could be wrong here, but I have not seen a woman uh, who come forward who claimed that she tried to make a big issue of this. I mean, maybe she told some people and he's a creepy weirdo, but, but you know, this was not, I've never, I never saw a story about this during the Obama years. Nobody went to a journalist. Nobody wanted in the social media era where there are all these people that they kept it quiet. They kept it very, very quiet. You've seen this with the media time and again, that they, you know, this is just another version of, Oh, I'm I'm in the press corps. I'm a photographer, and Obama is shaking hands with, um, uh, with 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 Louis Farrakhan, and I don't want anybody to see that. So I'm just gonna hide that photo. I'm just just gonna hide that. You know, that's which you know did happen in during the 2008 2009 election. Um, that's a problem. I mean, this is why they're not purveyors of truth there are people that are activists that are trying to push a certain narrative and they suppressed biden's uh creepiness because he was useful he was part of the team it's the thing with democrats is that if you're on their team there is no you know if you're useful to them more so than on their team even there is no principle that they will hold sacred there's nothing they're unwilling to violate or do to protect you but the moment you're not useful to them uh they're not big on they're not big on loyalty you know if you stand in the way all of a sudden, you find yourself in a whole bunch of trouble. Um, 
But, you know, these the woman who came forward, the first one, Flores, she says that it was a political calculation. And I, I'm at least find I find it refreshing that she had the honesty to say that. But that's what she said. It was a political calculation to do this. And, uh, yeah, you, you, you don't say. Uh, you don't say. It sure, it sure as heck was. So I, I don't think that Biden is going to be the, this is my, just my take on it, but I don't think that Biden is going to be the nominee. I really don't see it happening for the Democrats. They just, they're, they've gone so far left that um, they are unable to have this old kind of cronyist, corporatist, boring white dude, Joe Biden, as their next candidate. They're just not going to do it. So very few, uh, very few of you, I think, will care about this, but uh, I find it of, of note. Uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which I will, I will not attend, I will not go to. I don't care what year, I don't care what's, nope. It's a clown show, and not in a, not in a fun way. Uh, this is what Trump said about the, the Correspondents' Dinner here in D.C. Play 11. Are you going to the Correspondents' Dinner, or are you going to hold a rally? I'm going to hold a rally. Yeah, because the dinner is so boring and so negative that we're going to hold a very positive rally. And so uh, we haven't determined. We have about three sites. Everybody wants it. It'll be a big one. But uh, the correspondence dinner is too negative. I like positive things. Okay? I, I got to say that whenever I'm having a day where I say, oh, man, Trump, you know, the agenda is stalled and there are parts of what's going on that really do frustrate me. I just have to remind myself that Trump's ability to goad and poke at and agitate the media is just amazing. I mean, Trump really reminds me of, you know, that scene in Die Hard where Holly, John McClane, played by, of course, Bruce Willis, John McClane's wife, sees the weird Swedish guy who loses his brother in the movie and he comes in where the hostage is being held and he, and he smashes a bunch of things. And she and the wife smiles because she goes, only John could drive someone that crazy, you know, about about Bruce Willis's character. That's how I feel about Trump with the media all the time. I mean, he's amazing. I know Trump is still in the fight. I know it's okay because only Trump can drive the media so completely insane. I'm a very stable genius. Exactly. They're so used to being able to just shut everybody else down, terrify them into silence you know, induce them to abandon their principles and sell out. And Trump just, he just keeps crushing them. And I do love him for it. Folks, it's Friday, which means that we like to mix it up. We like to keep everybody on their toes. And you're going to have to be up on your very tippy toes to keep up with our next guest because he's seven foot nine. That's right. It is Jesse Kelly. The gigantic Texan himself. He is joining us to talk about all the things going on this week. He is, in case you didn't know, a radio host in his own right down in Houston on KPRC. And my understanding, uh, Jesse, is that you are in a new time slot. That is right. Starting Monday. Not tonight. Starting Monday. They obviously recognize my immense talent, and I am being moved to prime time, drive time, 5 to 7 down here. Central. There you go, KPRC Houston. You can check out my man Jesse Kelly. All right, Jesse, let's let's get to some of the latest here. First of all, what, what is your I, – I haven't even seen this yet, so I'm, 
I'm going to make sure that John has his hand on the drop button in case things get crazy. Uh, but what is your take on creepy Joe Biden, the hair sniffing, the shoulder massaging? You know, I'm like, how, I, how do I get some of that? I, I got tense shoulders. Well, what's going on? What do you think about all this? You know, to be honest, when it first started and I saw all the picture collages and things like that, I kind of cringed a little, but then I thought, you know, I know old people like that, especially generationally. I know people of that generation that really just, they're, they're just handsy people. That's just, they were brought up that way. That's how they are. And I don't like, one thing I really don't like, and I don't like gossip, and I don't like making accusations of pervert to people and stuff. Like, I think that's, I think that can get pretty ugly. So that's where I was. And then I saw a video, not not pictures, video compilation of all the C-SPAN videos of him swearing in congressmen and their family. And he's there with their wives and their young daughters lots of the time. And it made my skin crawl. Dude, that, that is more than just a man who likes to have his hands on people. There would be little girls, you know, almost trying to pull away and he like holds them back. Then he's nuzzling into their ears and, and hands wrapped not just on the shoulders around the front we're getting really cl- close to inappropriate I, dude something i haven't awesome. seen that video this is this is even creepier than i realized it was i'm not kidding man i was completely on the i'll just let him go he's kind of a handsy old man train and then i saw videotape not still pictures which people can do things with videotape from c-span and it was a compilation, and it was the creepiest stinking thing I have ever seen. Like, I thought, boy, that, that's a predator. Now, why Why is it? That, wow, going pulling out the P word for, for old man Biden on this one. Because, Jesse, you know, one part of this that I think people want to just skip right past, and they, they really can't or they, they shouldn't be able to, is that this stuff was going on in, in truly and literally full view of the press for eight years of the Obama administration, and you'll notice that Obama, uh, both both Barack and Michelle, very quiet on this one. Very quiet, but I, I I have heard, and this is just a rumor, but I've heard this now from two different sources of mine that say these Biden rumors are coming from the Obama camp, that that's why they're getting so much traction and they're getting put in the media so much that only Obama's people hold the power to plant a story in that many different media sources. So how about that? It's definitely coming from the left. I mean, this is Democrat on Democrat warfare. This is not conservatives that made this thing a story. No, it's not. I'd heard the Biden people were convinced it was Bernie Sanders, but I heard twice today from people who, in my opinion, would know that they think almost they're almost positive this is coming from Obama. Joe Biden does not have Obama's backing. Obama has not said a word if Joe Biden had Barack Obama's backing, that would have been what he'd lead with as he gets into this race. But he hasn't said a word. I think Obama's flirting with Beto, actually. I also didn't get a chance to discuss you. Earlier in the week was equal payday, and I thought it was so funny. I saw this story. I think it was from, I don't know, Time Magazine or something. Something like 50% of men think that equal payday is not is not a real problem. And, and I responded to it, well, that's because it's not a real problem. But why does this persist, Jesse Kelly? And what do people need to know about equal payday? That we already have it. For one, it's already the law. There's not like some new law. You don't reassert something that's already the law. It's already the law that you're paid equal for equal work in this country. And if you break down the economics of it, it's already in effect. 
meaning people, women are making the same amount as men who are working the same jobs in the same areas. That's just a fact. So it's all this is, it's like every other movement, but it's like the civil rights movement has become, it's like the Me Too movement. Any movement that starts out for good reasons eventually turns into a gigantic scam and a grift for power and money. Oh, you mean like the Southern Poverty Law Center, where they're sexually yeah. harassing people, paying themselves huge salaries, and just trying to smear conservatives on the weekends, pretty much? I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what? I don't even want to act like this is just isolated to the left. I'm not naming any names, but there are plenty of groups on the right that started out for good reasons or, or people that contribute to them for good reasons, and all of a sudden, five years later... It's a 501c3, and the CEO makes a million bucks a year off of grandmas sending in their Social Security check. Tell me a bit about uh, why Kevin Costner is the the biggest and the best actor in, do you say, like, alive or all time? I mean, you're, you're like Kevin Costner super fan. And why is Kevin Costner on your radar? Of all time. Absolutely of all time. I watched that movie, The Highwayman. It's on Netflix. It's about the uh, the Texas. I was going to watch that this weekend. We didn't even coordinate this. That was that's actually my social life for the weekend is watching The Highwayman. Are you telling me it's good? It's outstanding, gritty, and outstanding and accurate. And I mean, scarily accurate. I actually know the Bonnie and Clyde story really well. But beyond that, name an actor who is in more great movies than Kevin Costner. Think about Kevin Costner's resume. Because people sneer when you say it's the greatest of all time. In my opinion, no one can touch it. Maybe Denzel, maybe Leonardo DiCaprio. Think about the movies Kevin Costner's been in. Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, Tin Cup, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, it's a long, long, long list. A long list. For the love of the game, a perfect world. The guys have got a lot of them, man. A lot of hits. Dances with Wolves. Who has more? I right, Jesse Kelly, if I don't bring up Waterworld, though, people are gonna people are gonna say that I'm going soft on you here. No, it, that, that's fair. But here, hear me out. Waterworld is not a bad movie. We watched Waterworld. You've seen Waterworld. You maybe have seen it twice. I know. I have. I have Waterworld seen it a few. I've seen it a few times. Actually, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I enjoy it. It failed to meet expectations, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. And we can't judge the greatness of an actor on their stink bombs. Everyone points out Costner's Waterworld. Look at any other actor you think belongs on that list above Costner and go to their... Well, I think I think that uh, you're taking a bold stance here, Jesse Kelly. Everybody, you should listen to my man Jesse Kelly on KPRC Houston. Follow him also on Twitter at Jesse Kelly, the one and only Jesse Kelly. Thank you so much, my man. Have a great weekend and appreciate you joining us here in the Freedom Hut. Be good, brother. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed, it is Friday, so we'll do a double dose, double dose, double trouble of the roll call bubble, boil and treble, uh, whatever it is from the, uh, I don't know, that was supposed to be kind of a, a Macbeth reference, and some of you know that play much better than me. Uh, let's get to it. Steven, uh, hey, Buck, started listening to your show just weeks ago. 
Honestly, waterbeds aren't all that great. Maybe it's just me, but I don't like the feeling of sleeping on top of water. By the way, Shields High. Shields High to you, Stephen. Uh, I believe you on the waterbeds, man. I just have always, I've always been kind of curious. I have never experienced waterbed for myself. Um, I do not think that it's something that I would be particularly into. I was just telling the story today to some colleagues about the the trip I went on when I was in uh, grammar school. And we went, you know, I went to a Catholic school in New York. We're on our eighth grade trip. We went on this, this whale watching trip. And, you know, we, we, we figured, oh, it's going to be amazing because you see all these nature channel shows about whale watching, right? And you're just like, oh, look at the magnificent sperm whale breaching the surface, you know? And you see humpback whales leaping out of the ocean and all, all kinds of stuff like that, right? You, you think that that's. That's not what whale watching usually is like, for those of you who don't know. Usually, you're on a boat, which already in the ocean is not. Freshwater boats, I'm cool. I like I like the water when it is freshwater. So rivers, lakes, I'm into all that. Ocean, if I am within uh, sight of land, I'm good. The moment I am not within sight of land, I am not a fan, right? So you, you see... You know, these these nature documentaries, you think you're going to see these incredible breaches. Turns out humpback whales, seeing them breach is actually very rare for most. Like, I mean, not if you're studying them, but for people that go out to just see them, you tend not to get that lucky. And what you see is kind of a it looks like uh, like like a couple of trash bags in the distance, like float to the surface for a second and float down. Everyone goes, oh, my gosh, there's a whale. And and so that that part of it was disappointing. I don't think we I actually don't think we saw any whales. So there was that. Uh, but beyond that, and then, then what they do on whale watching boats, and it was the fall, and it was up in New England, and it was freezing. You know, I could have used a cup of chowder because it was very cold. And then they give you, uh, they give you like fishing poles as if that's going to make it, make it all better. You're not seeing whales, but maybe you're going to like catch some scrod off the side of the boat. And, and then people started getting seasick. And I got to tell you that I was not the sickest, but I was I was getting there and being on a boat with 40, 13 year olds or 14 year olds, half of whom are tossing their cookies. It was like a nightmare that I will never forget. And I can't believe that our teachers managed to make it through it. Uh, so I am not a I'm, I'm a landlubber is what I'm trying to say. I'm a landlubber. I wear boat shoes. It is an appropriation of nautical culture. I do not, in fact, enjoy the open ocean. I'm just saying. Yeah, that's right. If it came down to Navy or Air Force, I'd probably go Air Force just because I'm okay with planes and not being on boats. Jim writes, hey, Buck, we met at CPAC. Let me know if you need an assistant when you travel to China. I was in Hong Kong a little while ago. My passport is up to date. Seriously, man, let me know. Well, Jim, thank you very much. We'll see if the Chinese consulate will approve my travel uh it turns out that this can be a complicated matter when you are uh, googleable and ex-cia and nationally syndicated radio and tv personality is what comes up on the interwebs so fingers crossed that this all actually goes through uh it's been a little complicated Carla writes, i was watching tucker last night and he commented that perhaps some of the decisions trump is making uh, may mean he doesn't want to win the next election. 
While I would not blame him after these last few years, what do you think? And do you think Schultz running would hurt the Republicans or the Democrats more? Love the show. Shields high. Carla, I, 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 will, I really mean this, and I know that it's a kind of alternate universe analysis. I would never run for president. I would never run for public office. I, I just don't have the mentality and, and the stomach for it. Uh, I, I would not want to be president. Although I would be a badass president, we all know that. But I, I would not want to be president. Uh, I'd, I'd rather have the freedom that I do in my life. I mean, I don't even like being a government bureaucrat. I can't imagine being in charge of the government. I know there's some huge benefits, leader of the free world, mark on history. Obviously, afterwards, you write a book, or rather someone else writes it for you, and you make millions and millions of dollars. Um, but it's also very confining. And you have all these people that hate you and you're going through all this stress. If you look at George W. Bush, I mean, he aged at triple speed over the course of, of his presidency. I mean, he went into the presidency, a guy who you know could probably bench 250 and run six minute miles. And by the end of it, I mean, he was an old guy I mean, he was he was beaten down. So uh, I, I don't I don't know. I, I couldn't pretend to tell you what Trump's mentality is when it comes to um whether he would run again or not. You know, I, I can't tell you that exactly. Uh, I, I think, I mean, people said originally that he didn't want to win the election, and, and I just find that, I mean, that's an interesting theory. And we've never really gotten confirmation one way or the other, except for the fact that he managed to run so effectively that he did win, which I think would be kind of hard. Um, so, yeah. And then as for... Schultz running, hurting the Republicans, the Dem I think it would definitely hurt the uh, Democrats more because what this election, based on all the data, all the polling and everything we have so far and, and also previous elections, what it's going to come down to are white working class voters in the states that I always talk about, you know, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, uh, maybe Nevada. I mean, th these are the states that are really in play in a meaningful way. And I think in those places, if you have, say, a Bernie Sanders or a Joe Biden uh, candidate, which right now those are the top two for the Democrats, there would be a fair amount of flight from Bernie Sanders to Schultz. Biden, maybe not so much, but I think there are people who just instinctually understand that a Democratic Socialist running for the president of the United States is not something that would be good. Uh, this would be problematic in many ways. So, or winning at least would not be good. And what else did you ask? I think that's it. Oh, oh yeah, you asked if, if I think Trump wants to lose. No, I, I think Trump never wants to lose. I mean, that's not really in his nature to to want to throw throw the match. He's a very competitive guy. Uh, but I'm sure this wears this wears on him. I mean, I think that. You know, he, he's a guy who likes being prominent and he's going to be super famous and prominent even when he stops being president. He's still going to have his Twitter account with 60 or 80 or whatever it is, million followers. So he's still going to be able to do a lot of what he does right now if he wants to. He just won't be the leader of the free world. Uh, next, now, next up here, we have... This is from Steve. Someone in the Trump administration needs to confirm that uh, Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg is still alive and working. I don't trust the pictures and videos. Get fingerprints and blood tests to prove the person's not an imposter. Um, 
let's see, uh, start the approval process if it's not her for the next constitutional conservative justice ASAP because the anti-Americans will delay and obstruct the process at every turn. Uh, Steve, I, I, I do I do think that it is Justice Ginsburg. I don't know if you're messing with me or not, but I, it's Justice Ginsburg. They're not. This is not like the movie Dave. They did not find a person who looks exactly like Justice Ginsburg to replace her. And I know I, I think you're kidding, although I can't entirely tell from your um, your message here. Uh, so we'll see. But it, it is Justice Ginsburg and the bizarro cult around RBG that the Democrats have created just goes to show you that they can do that for anyone. The media has enough narrative power and, and left wing cohesiveness still that there's nothing that, you know, that they can convince people, at least some people of of anything that they choose to. So. There you have it. Uh, they can convince people that RBG is some kind of a hero. Team, I'm going to go into a, a just a, a brief breather here. We're going to come back. We're going to finish strong on some more roll call. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And remember, all I want for Christmas, even though it's April, is for you to tell one of your friends, colleagues, uh, fellow patriots, random dude that you're standing behind in line at CVS when that person's like, but I can't get cash back. No, you can't get cash back. But what about me getting cash back? No, you can't get cash back. Uh, tell that person or any person to listen to the Buck Sexton show, to download it on iTunes, or to listen live on the iHeartRadio app, or however you listen to podcasts, because the podcast of the show is thebomb.com. Scott writes, Buck, you're always recommending books that sound like something I want to read, but I'm also always driving when I listen to you. Is there anywhere I can go to see a list of the books you recommended? Scott, you're one of many folks that have asked this, and uh, the answer I have to give you is no. I do not have yet a a place where I keep all of the recommendations um, of of books that I make on the show because it just kind of comes to me sometimes. I tell people, oh, read this book or read that book, or uh, you know, I'm right now uh, in the process of really figuring out what my next. I usually line up three books at a time, and I try to get through all three before I line up another three. That tends to be my my way. And, uh, I'm kind of, you know, I have a, I have a problem too, where I refuse to abandon a book, even when I should, right. Even when it's clear that a certain book is not getting it done, I'm, I'm going to just plow through it. You know, recently I tried to get, I, I'm just going to tell you, I tried to get through Treasure Island because I find I never was assigned it in school and Robert Louis Stevenson between Treasure Island and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as two great classics of literature i think robert louis stevenson's writing is kind of kind of whack i mean the story the stories are really cool but it's it's kind of a slog to get through it it's not but i had to finish it so i did um but that's what i mean i just i won't stop and and i did see someone pointing out today that uh buddha judge and i can someone just can we get an official ruling on the guy's friggin name I've heard Buttigieg, 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 whatever. Can we just get someone to explain how to say that guy's name? 
but I saw that he said that he liked uh, James Joyce Ulysses. And that's what that is one of the all time classic books that people will say that they like that they think they should like, but have not really read. And even if they've read it, they don't like it. But it's just personal branding. Oh, I, I love, you know, I love James Joyce. Another one is uh, that I come across is The Power Broker. It's a biography of Robert Moses written by uh, Caro. And it is dense. I mean, it's very good, but people are always like, oh, I love The Power Broker. I'm like, really? You get all you get all the way through it? Um, yeah, Ulysses by James Joyce. I mean, there are some others, too. You could send me your thoughts on this one on Facebook. What are the books that people pretend to have read and everyone kind of knows that they haven't read it, but everyone else wants to pretend that they've read it too. So they're like, yeah, 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 sure. That sounds like a, a book that I'm, I'm really into. I mean, I, oh, oh, here's a great one. This is a straight up bookshelf only book. Uh, Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. Nobody has read that book, okay? If you see that book in someone's home, they're like, I'm going to have an Adam Smith book on my bookshelf. It's, it's literature signaling, folks. That's what it is. All right, you see, I got fired up about this. Uh, William writes something long. Uh, oh, this is important. Don't read on air. Okay, William, I will not read it on air. I will read it to myself afterwards. Robert writes, what about Beto's white privilege? Where he got off on multiple times when he got out of charges against him. That's what it would be called by anyone else or for anyone else. Robert very interesting dynamic that is playing out in this Democrat primary is how the 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 kind of push against whiteness and white privilege on the left for the next president is is very very apparent to me. You know, this is considered a knock on someone if if they're white, and you think about. Uh, Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. Look, I, I don't care. I don't care what someone's sexual orientation is, what their skin color is, what their religion is. I would just like a a competent person with a vision that is compatible with the future that I see for this country to be in a position of government power. That's it. You know, I, I don't care. The, the optics of the individual do not matter to me. But of course, on the left, I think it's the most important thing about a candidate. I, mean, I think that the leftists believe that those superficial characteristics are critical. But in the case of Bernie Sanders and Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders would be the first Jewish president in the country's history. Buttigieg would be the first gay president in openly gay president in the country's history. And that doesn't count as diversity in this conversation because they're white. And I think that's very, it's very interesting window into the mindset of the left right now. It seems, it strikes me as, you know, what, what are we supposed to take away from that? David, next up here, Buckman, which is technically my name. Shields High, like everyone else, the Smollett dismissal shocked me to the soul. But I have a theory to throw your way for discussion. Smollett's lawyer was named as a co-conspirator in the Avenatti extortion case. Did Jussie Smollett roll over on his own lawyer in a bigger case? That's the only explanation that makes sense. Uh, no, David, I, I maybe I can't tell you you're wrong, but I can tell you that, no, Jesse Smollett is a protected, uh, a protected, connected minority in Chicago. Uh, and that means that he got a different kind of justice, which is injustice. 
but great for him, bad for the system, and bad for the rest of us to watch it play out. Team, I now can send you off onto the rest of your weekend with uh, nothing but blue skies and happy days ahead. At least that's what I'm, I'm hoping for you. Uh, I'll be talking to you Monday and every day next week. Same time, same place. Shields high.